0: Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Mackie Craven, partner at OpenView. In this episode, we'll dive into Mackie's exploration mindset and how his academic experience impacted his work in venture capital. And the biggest theme that I want you to take away from this today is the concept made famous by Jeff Bezos called disagree and commit. It's something that's used often among partners and venture firms. Not everybody agrees with an investment idea, but once the investment's made, everybody is pulling in the same direction. This is a concept that is very useful and helpful in any organizational setting. So I hope you can find some things to take away from this discussion. Mackie focuses on enterprise infrastructure and data-driven application software at OpenView. Prior to joining OpenView, Mackey was an associate at Bessemer Venture Partners, focusing on investments in cloud computing, consumer internet, and data infrastructure. At Bessemer, Mackey was a board observer at Twitch, which was acquired by Amazon, Zapier, XTime, acquired by Cox Automotive, and Appirian, acquired by Arxan, and was involved with Bessemer's investments in Infinio, Liaison, and Antigua. Mackey began his career in research and teaching positions at the Sloan School of Management and in the Departments of Physics and Biology at MIT, where he co-founded BioVault, a company focused on designing low-cost microbial fuel cells for use in the developing world. He has also served as an independent scientific consultant to Continuum Energy Technologies and analyzed pipe and SPAC opportunities for Hudson Bay Capital Management. Mackey joined OpenView in 2013, and was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in 2017. Please enjoy my conversation with Mackie Craven. All right, welcome, Mackie Craven, to Fast Frontiers. Jim, <laughs>
1: thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So I'm super excited to have you on the show. And I I've, I actually want to start with your education. I mean, MIT and you got you got to explain some of this to me. Bachelors in biological engineering, bachelors in math, masters in technology and policy. That's I love the cross-pollination of ideas and the different disciplines there can I'd love to hear more about just how you how that came together.
1: Yeah, Tim, it's uh, more than happy to uh, to talk about it. So, I I grew up actually first on on a university campus, University of Chicago. My mother's a professor, a medical school professor. Now she's at Northwestern. So, I I grew up in a very academic environment. So, you know, 17, not knowing anything about anything, I sort of show up at MIT's campus, was sort of very fortunate to to have the opportunity to, to do that. And I just wanted to explore, right? I thought I would be an academic. There were some areas of kind of core interest. When I was a you know, young kid, I'd been interested in animals and thought I was going to be a herpetologist, sort of study reptiles. Eventually, when I first found out about sort of molecular biology in, in high schools, I became fascinated by that. So there was some pull in the biological thread. And I, I'd always liked the sort of combination of elegance and power of, of mathematics. And so I was just really interested in those areas. But I had no idea you know, let alone what the academic universe offered, let alone, you know, the rest of, you know, the rest of the world. So I, I just started that. And rather than thinking at the beginning, okay, this is what I'm gonna be, or this is kind of the, the goal. I just ended up early on taking, I think ended up taking or teaching classes in 23 out of at the time, the 32 kind of departments at, at MIT, just sort of following my curiosity and trying to understand the connections between disciplines.
0: And what what triggered that? Where did that interest come from?
1: So as I was sort of finishing up in sort of two and a half, three years, the sort of core undergraduate and some graduate work in mathematics, core engineering, and, and in biology, that sort of, you know, that being a, I was having a lot of fun at MIT for, I think, someone who's intellectually curious, you know, quite kind of geeky. I, uh, I I'm a lover of those things can be, it can be a playground. And, you know, I was 20, 21, not wanting to graduate in two and a half or or three years, wanting to to be able to stay in this sort of intellectual playground. And so I started looking at what I could do, right? And what I could do to sort of expand on some of the horizons and and the frontiers that I'd built technical understanding and kind of scientific understanding in, but how does it apply, right? You know, what's actually happening with this work out in the world? And I found this really interesting small program at MIT called the Technology and Policy Program and I was, you know, fortunate enough to, to be able to enter the program while I was still there and was always, you know, very interested in how this technology would actually apply applied, how ownership would be structured, and how organizations would make decisions about how they communicated, really communicated with the world about the technology that they had and that they were using in the language in our society and legal system in a structural sense that an organization communicates with the world about what technology they've built and how they're using it, aside from what's represented in their products.
0: But what's interesting to me is the uh, there's this thread of exploration. And, and I really like for for any of the younger listeners out there, you you know, they should listen and and pay attention to what you did there, which I think is often lost because there's so much pressure on young kids when they're going to school to be like, what are you going to do with our kids or with any kids that ask me for my opinion? I'm like, just go learn something. Right. So the fact that must've come from your parents, I would imagine that, that, that kind of created this sense of curiosity and exploration and, and hopefully, you know relieve the pressure to like, how am I going to apply this someday? You you don't know that answer until you go through the exploration, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, and while I, I agree, I mean, I wouldn't call MIT a, a liberal arts education in any sense of the content, But you can absolutely treat the institution that way. And I I did is that way within sort of the the STEM and broader domain. And I think there are folks, as you said, that will kind of go to school, whether medical school is on their mind or law school or a certain profession or getting a certain job after like, okay, I'm going to learn these things to get that outcome, as opposed to I'm going to build a broader base. I'm going to explore what I'm interested in. I'm certainly going to improve my ability to to think and learn and communicate and then with that, you know, as I start thinking about the next phase, I'll, I'll put myself in a position more informed uh, and more capable to, to make that decision then.
0: Yeah. So this, your, your role as explorer here, and as it relates to the topics that we're trying to cover here at Fast Frontiers, about how innovation's accelerating in unexpected places, it's hard to anticipate that. You know, we don't know the future, but you've developed over the course of your career kind of the tools to be that explorer, right? So how how is that exploration? thread played out now through your career as a venture capital investor.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a great question Tim and and for me when you look at the lens of of explorer and for me the sort of the curiosity and the intellectual curiosity that comes behind it really has been sort of a thread that has played out through my career and I'd say is probably the key reason why you know I, I hypothesized that you know I might have an interest and then might have an opportunity to be successful and and have been sort of excited to to be in venture capital for, for as long as I had. So we talked about some sort of the academic experience. And I remember at the end of that, when I was trying to answer the question that you know, we were talking about folks asking themselves of, of, well, what is next or "Or what does one wanna do? I, I got up on a white, you know, I got up on my whiteboard in my room and I wrote down everything I liked doing while I was waking everything, eating sort of the whole list. And then everything I you know wouldn't do, no matter sort of what the situation or compensation <laughs> or prestige was. And how do you do as none of B and as much of A as possible and, and and that's the beauty of, in my mind, of venture capital, because on, on the one hand, you have the opportunity to meet an incredibly diverse array of people, of people building things that they have deep knowledge about, that they are incredibly passionate about. And in those conversations, it, to me, it's perhaps the best learning opportunity that I've ever encountered. And that's just a core part of it, no matter where they live what their background has been, what market they're interested in, what product or service they're building, brilliant individuals who are highly motivated and uh and an opportunity to learn.
0: Yeah. So you have a you have a you have a front row seat with with the leaders that are actually creating the future, which is right. pretty darn cool. I agree with you. That's part of what I love. So which in your early days, so you, you know, you initially when you got an adventure was with Bessemer, right? Yeah. So which of the companies Which of those rocket ship experiences that exploration kind of typified and and gave you that most um, kind of learning and satisfaction?
1: You know, I I was fortunate to have joined Bessemer, full stop, an incredible kind of group of people, a great place to learn. And I was fortunate in, although, you know, one, one never knows this as it's happening, but in hindsight, in the moment I joined, so I remember the first investment memo, I think it was my first week at the firm that I saw come through, was their, you know, initial sort of lead of, of Twilio and then Shopify was right after. And I didn't know, right, obviously none of us did what those businesses would become or what that story would be. But I remember sort of the opportunity in those two to, to read and then to see that play out. And as I sort of started to learn in my own journey, I think the business that I worked with there that probably had the greatest impact on me and tied to the exploration was a, a business uh, called Twitch. So at the time, um, it was called JustinTV.gaming. It was actually mm-hmm. still part of a uh, previous entity, and and it was right really different than most businesses or business models that we'd encountered. It didn't fit the mold of a classic consumer internet sort of social network. It didn't fit the mold of a Classic SaaS business; it didn't fit the mold of kind of classic infrastructure or biotech. And and what was so interesting about it was that despite all of those things, and despite I think all the work that you know venture capitalists and moguls and others try to do to predict the future, it aligned with some of the underlying trends that were kind of happening in the world and and in sort of consumer technology much stronger than than many other businesses at you know at the time. And so getting to meet. Emmett and getting to meet sort of the rest of that group and understanding why they believed that at the time, seeing the sentence that, you know, individuals watching other people play video games was entertainment. Like there was a, a I remember bringing that up in, in the partnership meeting, right? There's a big question. It's like, yeah. really? And and then you, you'd look at the numbers, right? And even back in 2012, you know, which is early 2012, when we were thinking about this, more people in the United States had played just the single most popular video game franchise, which at the time was Call of Duty, then had played all other sports combined physically, right? Basketball, soccer, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, golf. Wow. You think about my people watch sports. You either grew up watching it. It's in your community, it's your blood, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your city, your family's a fan, or you grew up, you know, in the US, if someone loves, you know, cricket or rugby or or squash or water polo, it's because they played it. And we have a, you know, had this generational transition where we were going from physical sports to esports, right? To digital sports and a general traditional transition in entertainment combined with some fundamentally different economics and ability to stream media. And, and all of a sudden you you have this phenomenon, which for a consumer internet business at that scale, being profitable, it was growing at the rate that it was because it was innovating around video ads, and it built infrastructure that cost Hulu 80 million dollars to build on, on a venture budget. There was something there. And so getting learning about that, getting to work with that team was was exceptional. So if we could
0: dive into that a little bit, because you're hitting on a couple of things that you learn as a VC that I think a lot of other entrepreneurs and early stage and angel investors need to understand, which is, you know, you, you always start with kind of the market, right? Understanding what the market environment is. And in that situation, what I found interesting is you said, okay, do people do this, right? Is this interesting? And there was data underlying it. Right, you saw it, but oftentimes the data is not something that traditional kind of sources are paying attention to. So it's data that maybe isn't even being measured accurately because nobody's thought to measure it, right? That's right. That's kind of what you're describing. There's a situation where there's actually a lot of data there, but you're not going to find it in a Gartner report or, you know, and you have to dig a bit, but the, the best founders are the ones that have that insight and they have this market knowledge that they can bring to the table that nobody else is really focused on. And would you agree with that?
1: I, I, I would. I think you know one of the the incredible things about the context, right, that a founder often brings to the brings to their business and brings to the founding journey is founding a company is is an incredibly challenging to obviously incredibly rewarding exercise, but it's incredibly hard. So if, if a brilliant person is making the risk reward decision for themselves to go do this incredibly hard, you know, high probability failure, risky thing, there's often a very high conviction reason that many times has, in, you know, interesting data behind it from their experience and, you know, some of probably of why. And I think one of the great things we have the opportunity to do to, you know, explore as venture capitalists, is to understand that why, and in some cases, validate, bring new data to the table, or or rebuild that conviction uh, that the founder has. And so, in this case, there was ample data about how folks were using and engaging in sort of the video, sort of the video game and ecosystem. There it was ample data about sports. There was ample, all of it was out there. There was ample data about users that, that were engaging in this specific medium. But it's the insight to put it together. Right, that the founder has and the way to see the world of, okay, sure it's there, but it's not information yet. It's just data. And so when you put it together with the right question, with the right framing, it becomes information that then is valuable. And, and I think, go
0: for yeah, it. Yeah, no, very, very well said. And so, so when you think about some of the other investments you've made, how many times has it been that the entrepreneur has all that information versus they've made some of the intuitive leaps, they have pieces of it, and you as an investor have helped them pull it out or shape it or or, or gather it?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say the the majority of the time, I, I wish I had a precise percentage for you, but the majority of the time, it's been intuitive, right? It's through life experience. They could, in some of the cases, go collect the data, but they'd seen it or lived it, right? And so they don't need that to justify it to themselves. And there's right. so much to do that building that data set is often not you know, in my experience, part of an entrepreneur's process to found, but as someone uh, who's a venture investor, who's getting to know the person, getting to know the market, getting to know the business, we've got a lot of catching up to do. And we don't, you know, unfortunately, you know, we don't have the 20 years of, or 10 years or five years of experience in this domain to get that in context and build that intuition, which is where the data becomes incredibly helpful. So as we understand the vision, as we understand the framing, then we can go out and look for the individual pieces of data and relate them. To create that information.
0: I think the helpful investor can play that role and help entrepreneurs. And that's a good partnership. The 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 other thing, and it kind of twitch maybe helps illustrate it. Uh, Reed Hoffman has talked about this with Greylock and his Masters of Scale, that some of the best ideas, you do not have unanimous decision amongst the partners.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Because if it's a new idea, it's like, hey, like Bill Gurley and Uber, like, hey, this is a great idea, ride hailing you can just imagine the partners going, uh, let's talk about the risks here. Like government's not going to let you do it. There's no licensing, blah, 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 blah. Has, how have you navigated that? What's been your experience with some of those companies that really have been disruptive in terms of that decision making on behalf of the investor group?
1: Yeah, I think um, this is where sort of your the dynamic of a partnership relationships with partners and, and how you decide to work together as a group is so important. you know every firm is a, a little bit different in this just because sort of you, you look at it in any group that kind of work together to, to achieve something, you've got your own sort of norms and your own expectations of each other and you build trust over time. I completely agree with your statement that many of the most innovative and disruptive companies on one dimension, but in others, sometimes just many of the most successful businesses, when you know you're in an investment committee, when you're discussing it with your partners, There's a really diverse set of views. And and I found over time that sometimes the most polarizing, as you said, can be the the absolute best. And and, the way I'd characterize why, and then I'll talk a little bit about how to navigate it, both because it's new or it's it's different, but if it is, it's not just if someone's interested, but if someone is interested to push through as as a venture partner, to sponsor this entrepreneur, to have gotten that conviction... You you don't just do well when you're right. You do very well when you're sort of right and unique or right and different. And Mm -hmm. so it's, it's the magnitude of the difference that um where someone gets it, but most don't, that give the company market the opportunity to build that leadership position. And if everyone already did, the light, you know, was was uh, yes, you know, I get worried when we go around the table and and everyone's pounding the table to make the investments like what what you know, what are we missing? Yeah, if, you so agree, you have, if you all agree, if
0: you all agree with it, that means there's a lot of people outside that room exactly that have already figured that out as well. You're not you're, you that's need right. It.
1: And yeah. and so the culture, you know, of having I found having a culture of being able to disagree and commit right? You get value as partners if you're bringing different perspectives to the table. If we all looked at each person, each company with the same lens, as opposed to appreciating the diversity, we're, you know, yeah, you get more capacity, sure. You have the opportunity to make more investments with more businesses, but you don't get any extra value out of having other investors to talk to. And so it's it's the balance between understanding, not, you know, intuitively, because you don't, one doesn't think that way, but how your partner thinks what they see And then doing the best to make sure you help them think through the other parameters, but following their conviction, not holding it back as a group, I've found, leads to the ability to make those investments, to take those leaps, and ultimately together, build the the best portfolio and work with the best entrepreneurs.
0: Well, I'm so glad you mentioned, yeah, I was going to say it. So you beat me to it, the disagree and commit. So for people that don't know this, I remember when I discovered this was a Jeff Bezos, Amazon principle, I guess, right? When in meetings, it's okay to disagree and commit. So I may not think that the Twitch thing's really going to be a big idea. Uh, I, I think there's a number of risks to it, but you know what? If we're going to make this investment, I'm all in, we're doing it, right? I'm supportive. I'm not I'm not trying to work against you.
1: Right. I think that's critical, right? You know, in in our partnership, everyone needs to be at least at at that point, we work together with every business. We're highly collaborative. And and I think in any partnership to build trust and to have a healthy dynamic, you know, if, if a year later or three years later or 10 years later, someone's going back and say, you know, no, you know, I always thought that was a bad idea from the beginning. We never should have done it. Or, Or you're just, you know, trying to think about where you're spending your time. At the end of the day, if you know your firm's made an investment if your you know partner is building that company you're building that company or at least you should be and and i think a culture of uh you know being able to disagree and commit and really commit not you know lip service but in action is 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 critical to enabling that diversity of thought and and the value that comes from it
0: yeah it's such a, an important concept and i my guess is it's just it's rare it doesn't exist in many organizations you know it, it's it's because it takes certain type of leaders to allow that that tension to exist. Absolutely. So, kind of let's shift to what you've been doing at OpenView. You've been there for, coming on 8 years, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh...
0: a lot has changed there, I would imagine. And I've known OpenView as really being the the, the metrics people that really understand SaaS metrics and and product led growth companies and which I think a lot of a lot of other entrepreneurs are familiar with as well, but yeah, can you share with us just kind of what that uh, how that's changed and evolved over time since you've gotten involved with OpenView?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. It's involved. It's evolved a lot. Um, so I, I joined in 2013. Um, the firm was founded in 2006. We were sort of in the middle of investing our, our third fund, and you know, I remember when I pick up the phone and and talk to entrepreneurs, and I'd say, you know, I'm. From OpenView, you know, the first question out of someone's mouth would be like, why are you trying to sell me an HP infrastructure software product? <laughs> right. Right. It was, you know. <laughs> I, and, I had that and, confusion. And, exactly. Right. Many listeners at this point might be like, what, what, what was that? But no, HP right. had a, a fairly substantial product with, with the same name, right? We were kind of not a, on the map and 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 we we also didn't have a sense of what product-led growth was. We didn't even have a, a word for it yet. And so, at, you know, fortunately, it's, it's funny, the, the reason I ended up joining the firm was really about the philosophy of one kind of focus on on many dimensions. I'd grown to really fall in love with business software, both for me, infrastructure and software that is kind of more technical and users going back to maybe those mm-hmm. geekier roots of, of mine. And mm-hmm. uh, and that focus and the stage focus allowed us to, to build a team that was a mix of investors and operators to really work with these companies at that phase. And so, you know, we're, Fortunate in the way to to have worked with some fantastic entrepreneurs, those at Workfront, which was uh, acquired by Adobe for a little over a billion last year. Datadog was the first investment that that I made after joining the firm. Wonderful um, to work with that team sort of up to and and through the IPO. Um, But over that time, and and Datadog was a great first example of this, we started unpacking a different way that software companies um, could be built. And in many cases, it could be built to to much greater you know, higher consistency of growth, greater efficiency, and and ultimately more valuable businesses at the end of the day. And, and those early ideas, which really Datadog helped us start thinking about, became the the core nexus of the work that we've done and the thinking and writing that we do around around product led growth. And so, just snapshots. You know, when I joined, again, people thought I was trying to sell them some infrastructure software. Uh and you know, and now um, we're having sort of wonderful conversations with entrepreneurs and, and working with them and building the product led businesses and non-product led businesses of of scale.
0: And your, I think you've written about or it's been discussed in terms of your latest fund and the uh the increase in size. And as somebody who's been who is an LP in a you know a number of different funds and I've you know run a fund of funds, you know, there's there's a um definitely a potential for some strategy creep or, you know, underappreciating how different it is raising a fund of one smaller size to a bigger size. So what, can you fill us in a little bit about that in terms of how you think about that as a team?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The The approach that we took was from a bottoms up. And, and the reason we ended up raising the larger fund is that the strategy that we were executing for our fifth fund, and we've been executing in our fourth. We realized the fund was actually undersized for, and so let me sort of and walk through that and why we ended up picking the, the number that we did. So first, you know, our, our philosophy, I mentioned, focus is is focused on a number of dimensions. One of those dimensions is the number of companies that we work with, right? So in a given fund, um, we'll have you know up to fifteen businesses in the whole fund. Right? We'll make four to six investments a year as a firm. Mm -hmm. partner will make one, maybe two uh, investment per year. And then we certainly will follow on, but often double down and will lead subsequent rounds in portfolio companies. So we build that concentration even from across the portfolio more deeply over Mm -hmm. time. And um, as we were looking at kind of, you know, round sizes and capital needs of companies coming into our our fifth fundraise. So thinking about these things in, you know, 2016, starting to think about them in 2016, kind of raising the fund in, in 2017, said, okay, we're going to invest in 15 companies and we're going to execute this strategy. Um, at the stage that we invest, you know, 300 million feels like the right number. And as we got into it, started working with companies like iSpot or Calendly or Exonius, again, all business with tremendous potential and many, you know, others said, actually, we're having to make a choice earlier in the fund's life than we expected between doubling down, right, fully executing that, that strategy, which you know, we've done a Datadog dog and a number of, of companies before, uh, we've been quite successful, uh, or getting to sort of the full 15 or 15 plus companies that we'd ideally like to have in the fund from a diversification perspective. And we made the choice to have fewer businesses and and double down and continue that strategy. And so, we, when we thought about raising Fund Six, which is four hundred and fifty million, right, fifty percent larger, what we did is that the same type of analysis, but maybe with a little bit of a longer time horizon in mind, saying, well, strategy is not changing. We're still going to invest in this number of companies. We're going to invest at the same stage, but we want to be able to fully lean into and and on these not to follow on, but step up in these businesses over time. And so rather than raising an opportunity fund or rather than saying, you know, we're going to do twice as, make twice as many investments and double the fund size, which I think really gets into some of the dynamics that you were describing before, mm-hmm. that, um, that it's a different it's just a different, uh, different, piece, a different set of problems. Uh, it was about the capital that we needed to execute the strategy that we were executing. And that's, that's how we got to, to the side.
0: Obviously, it, it takes takes the right amount of thought. I don't know that everybody appreciates that. They just kind of assume, oh, funds are successful and they get bigger, but you really need to think it through. And obviously you, you did, and you've done it in a way that allows you to be consistent in your strategy, which is the key. What about the role of, given that we're talking about fast frontiers, uh, the role of geography in terms of the, where the companies are located and how you think about geography?
1: Yeah, happy to. So geography is an area, if you think about focus in many dimensions, where companies are founded for us is, it's actually, it's expanding and will continue to over time, which we can talk about. The the geographic focus for us tends to be on businesses that are looking to build a core part of their market. In North America, and certainly for business software, you couldn't say this about, you know, consumer internet, you can't say this part where you can't say this about a number of industries, but for soft, you know, business software, North America and the United States within it, still the single largest homogenous market in the world. And so whether a company is founded in the Valley, you know, next door to, to me in Boston in New York city in Seattle and Tel Aviv in Sydney in Indianapolis in Columbus, in, you know, those businesses, as they get to scale, will all, uh, be going to the same market. And so if you look at the founding locations and headquarters of OpenViews portfolio companies, it really does look like a, a heat map or an index of software activity in the US and abroad. And so, you know, our, our largest concentrations, which are still sub 10% of locations, are in, you know, New York and in Seattle, and then the Bay Area and Tel Aviv and Toronto and Sydney. Behind in companies, Chicago and Indianapolis, and in Austin and in Atlanta and Salt Lake, and and so for us, you know, as we as we look at the world, I think we're on know, exactly a number of years, but certainly more than a half century transition from company location and founding location. If we think about the sort of middle or, or second half of the 1900s, was constrained by where capital was and where they could go to to seek that capital. And I think we're, all, we're in the middle of a long journey where it's, um, we'll see it soon, but it's only constrained by folks' abilities to operate and then where talent is, uh, and I think particularly um, technical talent. And so as a result, as we've seen, you know, you don't need to be in a watering hole in kind of Silicon Valley or you know New York now or Boston to get the knowledge, right, that you might need to go zero to one through, you know. Podcasts like this, and, and frankly, just access to the internet, particularly the English-speaking internet for this kind of this part of the world, you can get some of some of that initial knowledge. We now, through technologies like Zoom and, and Slack, it's much easier to deliver products and services and to engage with customers and prospects over great distance. And ultimately, through things like product-led growth, the ability for individual users to discover and experience products and services, bring them in for themselves or for their organizations, it's easier to sell over distance. And so, again, for all those reasons, you know, our, our portfolio is quite geographically distributed and, and we think will be increasingly geographically distributed over the span of time.
0: And what... What sort of patterns have you seen in terms of the entrepreneurs and companies working in some of these non-obvious locations or, you know, not the traditional hubs in terms of how they leverage their strategic advantages, not the, not the weaknesses, but how do they use it? Yeah. Know, the, the judo move, right? The-
1: exactly. Well, there, there's, you know, some things in, and, you know, I attribute this line of thinking it may go farther back, but to uh, Warren Buffett, right? If you, if you live outside of the noise, you can have a, a very clear picture of the world. And, and one of the best ways that, um, that I've seen companies who are not founded in uh, one of the higher density areas, whether or not you know, someone takes the opinion that it's an echo chamber, you can at least look at kind of, you may not know the minutiae or the details of the day to day of these little things going on, but you can see the big picture and you can mm-hmm. see it really, really clearly. And so I think product direction, market understanding are, are, are a big part of it. Another is, is talent and is community. Right, we've seen businesses be able to whether in Durango, Colorado. So I led a Series A of a, a business mm-hmm. called Prime, which Prime, the time I think still is for the largest Series A in a, any town of less than twenty-five thousand people. It's a wonderful story there. The you know, Scott Maxwell, an um, investments at Exact Target. I know you you know, know well, and, and had a great conversation with with Scott mm-hmm. Dorsey here on on the program. And seeing that community be built in Indianapolis is that having great talent, great vision, and a kind of great product and great company some of these geographies, you get to build new ecosystems and and having that type of loyalty and having that type of commitment and community um, is just a harder thing to do in in the hubs or in the sort of historical hubs. And and it's a real competitive advantage. As I look across the US today, I think like the Salt Lake ecosystem, sort of the various social Mm -hmm. and business connections that exist in that ecosystem have created a tremendous amount of, of equity value and of a sort of self-fulfilling positive feedback loop with respect to innovation and the founding of companies. We've been fortunate to have, you know, made two investments in the area. Both, you know, have uh, at this point exited for you know over a billion dollars. But you know, you, there's much greater opportunity, and there will be going forward there. Right. So it's, um, you know, those to me are some of the advantages. That's it's interesting. Really vision and people.
0: Yeah, it's, it's uh, as I've been saying, it's time to flip the script a little bit when you're in any of these towns and when somebody comes and asks me like, oh, can you really hire the technical talent you need in name the city, right? Cincinnati, Uh, I say, can you hire people in Silicon Valley? Because I've done it and it's really hard and you're competing with Facebook and Google and LinkedIn and Salesforce and everybody else. And so it's actually thinking in a different way. It's a strategic advantage. How do you leverage that as a strategic advantage? As well as the, as we kind of mentioned the judo move, uh, you know, I talked to, and I think you've invested with uh, Blackbird out of Australia. Yeah. Yeah, I talked to uh, Nikki Shavak there and, you know, they have a couple of prominent, obviously, product-led growth companies. Like, it was interesting because when I asked them kind of why those exist in Australia, it was, it was, it was, was, you'd appreciate, it was constraint-based engineering, right? It was because exactly right. they were in Australia, because they could not physically get to the US market and because their time zones were terrible, they had to figure out how to sell their product into corporations with all those constraints. And by doing so, they became great product-led growth companies.
1: I I, uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think you and I may have even talked a little bit about this in the past, which is, you know, Australia from its geographic position and, uh, but otherwise being a, you know, a common English speaking, sort of commonwealth country as with an interesting economy has a bunch of these constraints. And so, all of, you know, the, all of the businesses that we've seen that we believe have the opportunity to be venture-scale or public business or have already been on that journey um, out of Australia are product-led by necessity. If you can get to 5 million in ARR there, people have to be able to discover that product. They have to be able to observe that product. They have to be able to use it. And groups like Blackbird are doing an incredible job of starting to provide a capital ecosystem. In, in Australia, that, that wasn't there, though. If you go back 10 years, right, the funding actual constraints also contributed to that, right? Product-led businesses are often much more capital efficient upfront, And so if there isn't a local venture capital community or even a national venture capital community for you to pull from, all of those together through sort of the necessity of evolution, if you get to uh, you know a sort of reasonable startup scale. You've had to be built that way, and and our two investments in in Australia also have that form factor.
0: So, what what else would you like people to know, and entrepreneurs to know about you and OpenView that maybe people don't isn't obvious that they're, they're not going to find online. What would you like them to know?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple things, and I'll I'll, I'll focus on uh, on OpenView. I'm just a, a piece of of that puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the the most common misconception I'd say about the firm is that we're sort of late stage or traditional growth stage investors, right? We use the, the word expansion stage. And, and I think certainly if I heard that right off the street or when I first heard, it, it's like, I don't know what that means. How do I unpack that? You know, what, what what's what's that all about? And and it's because we don't think about companies and, and our sort of investments with respect to a specific revenue scale or a letter on a round or an amount of capital someone might be raising. But we really look at businesses in terms of where they are and bringing their products to market starting to build their team, thinking about, you know, how to scale. And and so for us, I think a common misconception is that, you know, business needs to be a 10 million or 5 million of annual recurring revenue. 80% of our investments, the businesses are between one and 5 million right there. You know, and there's things earlier and and the majority of those are on the very early side of that. And so, um, you know, what we look for is less to do with kind of what, what is the number, but much more to do with, you know, Customers excited about it? And are, do you feel as a business, do you feel as an entrepreneur that you're ready to start putting the foundations and systems in place to go on the journey to be that large and enduring company, right? To, to go through the scaling process. For some businesses, that happens in their first dollars of revenue. For some businesses, that happens later on. And so I, that's that's one of the things that that I think is, is just critical about us and, and about how we think about the world that, that I'm not sure is is well understood.
0: Thank you for sharing that. It's been great to learn about your background and, and, and sharing your thoughts on this space. And I, I hope a lot of our listeners, I know they will get a lot of value from it and uh, look forward to collaborating more with you in the future.
1: I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, and again, Tim, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure. Awesome.
0: Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Kevin Maney, advisor of category design and author of Play Bigger.